Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Last week we did our Q&A session on the first section of lessons, which was the person of Christ and um, the doctrine of who Jesus is, truly man, truly God, the pre-incarnate Christ, the incarnation, the deity of Christ, and the humanity of Christ. And then we ended with our historical considerations, looking at uh, the early church's battle with heresy and false teaching on the person of Christ, uh, the Nicene Creed, the Council of Nicaea, the Chalcedonian Council, all that good stuff. And you can find all these on the uh, FBC podcast. So if you listen to music on Spotify or iTunes or anywhere that's online, you can find podcasts and you can find our um, past sermons and past lessons on there. Um, Tonight, we're going to then begin the second section of lessons for this study, and that is on the work of Christ. So having gone through the person of Christ and the doctrine of who he is, now we're going to begin over the next uh, six weeks or so, I think, to look at the, uh, the work of Christ and what Jesus has done. So to begin tonight with that section of lessons, we're going to look at the life of Christ. The life of Christ in the Bible is presented to us in uh, what we call the Gospels. Now, we know the Gospel to mean the good news, and we can sometimes boil the Gospel down to um, our sin and what God has done about our sin in Christ and receiving that by faith. That is the good news. But in the Bible, the Gospels, the good news, is about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And they are presented to us there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call synoptic Gospels. They tell basically the same chronology. There's a lot of similarities in those three Gospels. John is an entirely different format, and he arranges his more theologically and thematically, so it's not necessarily chronological. It doesn't go in the same order. They all end, obviously, with the passion of Christ, the atonement, the cross, the resurrection. They all tell the same story, just in different ways. But Luke's gospel begins in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You don't have to turn there. I think you'll know this when I start saying it. Uh, Luke dedicates his gospel to a man named Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus seems to be... um, a Gentile, someone that's interested in Christianity, and Luke dedicates both his gospel and the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, he dedicates both to Theophilus to give him what Luke says is an orderly account of what happened to Jesus. And Luke says there in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that he has gone through painstaking work detail to make sure he talks to eyewitnesses to give a true trustworthy eyewitness account of the things that had happened in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to the Christian faith and we talk about the work of Christ, and tonight we talk about the life of Christ, we're not talking about simple 
Bible stories. I think sometimes uh, with our memories of Sunday school and vacation Bible school, as wonderful as those things are, we can sort of relegate the events of the Bible and the work of Christ to little uh, snapshot Bible stories. And they sort of become like fairy tales to us, don't they? Or fables or myths. And, uh, you know, Jesus said this and he did this. But Luke reveals there in his introduction that we're talking about a real person in real time and real space. We're talking about real events that actually took place in history. So unlike every other world religion or every other philosophy, the Christian faith is not based on blind faith. The Christian faith is based on actual events in time and space and history that actually happened, literally happened. We're not just talking about religious folklore, religious fairy tales. These are real people, real places in real time, uh, especially when we mean and talk about the life of Jesus Christ. So let's begin then where we should begin uh, with the birth of Christ. Uh, knowing, going back, we did the pre-incarnation, we did the incarnation, we talked about the theology of this. Now let's talk a little bit about the actual event of the birth of Christ. And to do that, we need to start with the most obvious theological point, and that is the virgin birth. The virgin birth was a real, miraculous event. We should say, probably, the virgin conception. Uh, we should not say the immaculate conception. Okay? I think sometimes we hear that and think that that's appropriate to use. That's actually a Roman Catholic doctrine that teaches that G uh, Mary was sinless. Not, the, not just that she was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, but that she was sinless and remained a virgin even after Jesus was born. Okay, so that's a Roman Catholic doctrine called the Immaculate Conception. We believe it's false. Uh, Mary was not sinless, and she needed a Savior uh, just like the rest of us. So we do not believe in the Immaculate Conception. We believe in the Virgin Conception, that when it comes to the birth of Christ, uh, there was no physical relation between her and Joseph, or anyone else for that matter, that produced uh, Jesus. That was a miraculous conception by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can read that in Matthew 1, Luke 1. It's very clear. Uh, the angel appears to Joseph and Matthew and says, Mary will conceive. Do not divorce her. Do not put her away. This is a miracle by the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 1, uh, when the angel Gabriel appeals, appears to Mary, she says, of course, how is this going to happen since I'm a virgin? She understands what's going on here. You're going to have a kid. And she says, I can't. We're just betrothed. We haven't engaged in an intimate relationship in that way. It's not going to happen. And the angel says, no, no, no. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And you will uh, bear a son and call his name Jesus. All of this goes back to Old Testament prophecy, specifically Isaiah 7, 14. Again, you can circle that there on your handout, but you know it probably by heart. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Remember? But here's what happens sometimes with that verse. We hear that verse, we hear uh, that passage, especially around Christmas time, and we take it and we only look at that one verse as if Isaiah's prophecy was just one verse. There's a lot of weird stuff going on in Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, the kingdom of Judah is being threatened by Assyria. 
that's already taken the northern kingdom of Israel, remember? Now they're coming after Judah, the southern kingdom. And Isaiah is prophesying to King Ahaz that this will not come to pass. God will protect his people. God will deliver his people from Assyria. Now, Babylon is another story, but Assyria for now, Isaiah is telling him God will deliver his people even through this. And then Isaiah says, by the, by the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. Now, you, you'll hear some scholars sometimes talk about that word virgin in Isaiah's language, it could very well mean just a young woman. It could mean a young maiden. It doesn't necessarily mean virgin in the way that we think virgin, okay? So Isaiah's prophecy had a meaning in his time for King Ahaz, for the kingdom of Judah, and the kingdom of Assyria. And what Isaiah was saying was that a promised child will be born soon that will be a sign to you, O king, that God is going to... God is going to deliver his people. Now, when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament clearly picks up on that theme, and they pick up on that prophecy. And Matthew says, in essence, while that might have been partially fulfilled in Isaiah's day, through that birth of that child and God's deliverance of his people from Assyria then, the greater fulfillment is coming now through the birth of of a child through an actual virgin, not just a young maiden, not just a young girl, but an actual virgin. And this deliverance will be greater than that deliverance. So this whole thing is a sign that God was acting to deliver his people. That's what it meant in Isaiah's day, and that's what it clearly means by the birth of Jesus, because it's always tied to that promise. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save or deliver his people, not from Assyria, not from Rome, not from Babylon, but from their sins. So in both instances, we see God acting to deliver his people by this promise of this virgin birth. But the question might be, why is it necessary? Why is this part of the story? You know, is this just some, you know, some trick that God does to sort of prove that he is uh, doing this thing miraculously? Like, why does he sit back and say, in this grand story I'm telling, in the Savior I'm going to send, why do we need the virgin birth? Well, we need the virgin birth because whoever's going to be born and whoever's going to deliver humanity is going to have to be a new Adam. Okay, if you think about it this way, Adam and Eve plunged mankind into the fall, right? Sin, death, the fall, the curse. And every single human being born since then, as a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, as C.S. Lewis puts it in, in Chronicles of Narnia, they come from that lineage, and we are born in Adam with this sinful, fallen nature, right? So in order to circumvent that and yet still have a true man, with a true human nature, but born and conceived in a state of innocence, as was Adam in the first place, we got to have a new Adam. And so we cannot have the seed of Adam. It must be something else. So we have the virgin birth, where God miraculously allows Mary to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit, still a true human being, 
with a true human nature, but not a fallen, sinful human nature. Otherwise, uh, we would not have a Savior. We would have someone who could only die for himself, but certainly not someone who could die for anyone else. The biggest part of this is in Genesis 3.15. If you've been around long enough, I quote this all the time. It comes up every Christmas. What happens in Genesis 3.15? Why don't you turn there and uh, look at that with me. Genesis 3.15. This is right after the fall, and um, Adam and Eve have sinned against God. God has come to look for them. He is beginning to issue out the curses uh, on the serpent, the woman, the man. Uh, But listen to what God says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So if you're paying close attention to the wording here, God is talking to the serpent. Adam, Adam and Eve are both right there, but he goes to the woman. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and her. Now, he could have said you and mankind. He could have said, I want to put enmity between you and humanity, you and Adam. But he says, I'll put enmity between you and her. And then he goes even further, God does, and he says, between your seed, serpent, and her seed, the woman. We know enough about childbirth and conception to know that the seed in that whole transaction does not come from the woman. Uh, God understands this. There's something else going on there, isn't there? Between your seed serpent and whatever it means that there will be the seed of a woman. And then we have that promise, even though you shall bruise his heel, which is clearly not a fatal wound, He will nevertheless bruise your head, serpent. And and many people have looked at this, scholars and theologians over the centuries, and called this, in fact, the first gospel. Because here we have the promise of deliverance that God makes from the serpent through the seed of a woman, who, although he bruises the heel of the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman bruises and crushes his head. And all of that implies the seed of woman, a virgin birth without a human father. Okay, it's part of the promise from the very beginning. So the virgin birth ensures a sinless, perfect man, a new Adam, seed of a woman. So let's talk a little bit more now um, about the Christmas story proper. We talk about the the virgin birth. Let's talk about the Christmas story. We read that in Luke 2. We read it every Christmas. Hopefully you read it to your family, but there's important stuff there in Luke 2. From the very beginning, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This happened when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So Luke, in Luke chapter 2, why all the names, and why the places? Well, because what Luke wants to emphasize is that these are real people, these are real places, and these are real events. In those days, there was a historical decree from a historical emperor, Augustus, 
through a historical governor, Quirinius, in a historical place, Syria. And then Luke goes on to mention other places. He mentions Nazareth. We get to Bethlehem. We'll talk about that in a minute. But real people, real places, real events. Well, you know the Christmas story. Uh, Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem, the town of Joseph's lineage, to register in this tax census. And they're there, and it's overcrowded, and there's no place for them to go for the baby to be born. And they wind up in a stable, uh, giving birth to Jesus there amongst the animals. And they lay him in a bed of straw, a manger where the animals would feed, wrapped in swaddling clothes. You know, the, we know the story. But why, again, why those details? Why does God do it in this way? Well, in some way, we see in that story the Savior's identity and his mission. That here's the incarnate God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, nevertheless humbling himself, as Paul says in Philippians 2, becoming a servant. And how much more lowly can you get than to be born amongst animals in a barn and laid there where the animals would feed in a trough filled with hay? And people would look at that and question, what kind of king is this? What kind of God is this? What kind of savior and deliverer and redeemer is this? And I think that's what God has in mind. What kind of deliverer is this? What does this all mean? Well, it's all a picture of his humility, his emptying himself, his incarnation, what he came to do in serving people, not to be served. And so there in that picture, uh, get the contrast of what happens after the birth of Jesus. There on the fields, who are the first people that are reached with the news of the birth of Jesus? Lowly shepherds, lowly, poor, dirty, stinky shepherds out on the hillside. But in that picture, you see contrasted with the lowly shepherds, this choir of the hosts of heaven singing glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill to men. But it's not just the lowly, is it? Who else is called there to the early life of Jesus? Not in a manger, uh, by the way, but I don't, I'm not going to come to your house and tear your wise men away from your nativity scene. They came a few years later to the house, but it is magi, wise men from the east, probably notable, wealthy, very intelligent, very educated men, bearing wealthy gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So even there, all over the story of the birth of Jesus, you have these contrasts of the God of the universe sleeping in a barn. The first people to receive the news are lowly shepherds from the angels of heaven themselves. And then you have the wise men from the east coming to worship and to pay homage to this lowly child. All of that revealing Jesus' identity, Jesus' mission as, our, as a servant. We also see God's absolute control in history, his absolute sovereign control in history. No matter what Caesar Augustus thinks he's doing, no matter what Quirinius thinks he's doing, no matter what all the hustle and bustle of Bethlehem was at that time, no matter what Joseph and Mary thought they were doing and just going to fulfill this census, God was at work in every single detail arranging and fixing and ordaining things the exact way that he had planned. There was no accident in any of it. We know that because of the details surrounding this. Um, Caesar Augustus was, if I'm not incorrect, you history people might can help me, I think I'm correct, 
Caesar Augustus was the first emperor to spawn what we call the emperor cult. So uh, Emperor Augustus, Caesar Augustus, was the first emperor that would have been worshipped as a god. And there would have been temples made to Caesar Augustus right alongside Zeus and the others. There would have been sacrifices and offerings made to Caesar Augustus and the image of the emperor, just like the other Roman gods. So if you contrast this man who had exalted himself to the place of God and who had exalted himself in worship and exaltation over all that is called God, and yet you have this lowly baby being born seemingly at the command and the control of this emperor, who decreed this thing and sent the people to Bethlehem so Jesus would be born there. But what do we see? The whole thing's upside down, isn't it? And that Caesar Augustus is actually subservient to this lowly king born in the barn. And it's evidence because this king's father is the one who has orchestrated all of this in the first place. Think about Nazareth, mentioned there by Luke. word Nazareth means branch word branch, and if you know some Old Testament history, you know there's some significance to that word. Jeremiah talks about a righteous branch that will arise. Speaking of the Messiah, Israel's king and deliverer, there will be a righteous branch, Nazareth. Uh, When you think about um, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, from the stump of Jesse, and you see the picture there, don't you? Israel has suffered judgment. They've been cut down like a tree. Jesse's house is just a stump. There's nothing left. But even there from that stump, there shall come forth, Isaiah says, chapter 11, verse 1, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch, a new sprout. And here at the very beginning of Jesus' story, we see Nazareth, the branch. And Jesus returns there after going to Egypt to hide from Herod, right? He returns to Nazareth because, Luke says, the Bible says he will be called a Nazarene. And we know him to this day as Jesus of Nazareth. How about the city of Bethlehem? We know Joseph goes there because it's his his ancestral homeland. It is the city of David, the city of the great King David. Where else would the Messiah be born except the city of David? In fact, Micah had already told us that the Messiah would be born in this Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephratah, the city of David, where David came from. When Samuel went to Jesse's house to anoint the king David, it was there in Bethlehem. When God told David that he would raise up one of his sons to sit on his throne forever, it'll be from your house, from your lineage, one of your sons. And here we have Joseph taking his family to Bethlehem, the city of David, so Jesus could be born there as the king that was promised through David. Bethlehem is also a combination of two words. I think this is fantastic. Bethlehem is a combination of two words that means house of bread. You know Hebrew a little bit. Bet means house. Lechem means bread. And so Bethlehem simply means house of bread. Uh, Isn't it Jesus who tells us in John chapter 6, I am the bread that came down from heaven? Uh, that he institutes the Lord's Supper for us, and he breaks the bread and says, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. I am the bread of life. If anyone eats, me, eats of me, he will never be hungry again. Anyone who drinks my blood, he'll never thirst again. All pointing to himself and what he came to do. All wrapped up there 
and that name Bethlehem. We got to move on quickly to the baptism of Christ. We talked a lot about the early years of Christ last week, so maybe go back and listen to that a little bit. The, um, when he was 12 years old, being in the temple, and his uh, presentation in the temple eight days after he was born. So we're not going to revisit that. Let's fast forward to the next things we have in the gospel, and that is the baptism of Jesus. And we're introduced to this man, you know, John the Baptist, who appears as a prophetic messenger. Again, a prophetic messenger who was prophesied by prophetic messengers. Uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40, prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, he says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Behold, make straight and prepare the way of the Lord. Make the highways plain, or make the highways clear, bring the mountains low, make the valleys rise to prepare a highway for our God. And so there's this picture of this voice crying in the wilderness. And when we come to the Gospels and people say to John the Baptist, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? And he says, no, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. He says, I'm the one that Isaiah prophesied of. Also in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we have this promise of a messenger, little m, that will come before the messenger, big M. God says, Behold, I will send my little m messenger before my capital M messenger. And of course, this is prophesying of John the Baptist being that messenger that prepares the way for the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry. Uh, John the Baptist comes preparing Israel for God's coming kingdom. That is his message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming, it is at hand, it is here. And the king is here. Behold, uh, John says, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. The kingdom is here. Repent, be washed, turn around, and serve God. And the sign that he gives for this is baptizing. He is immersing people in the Jordan River. Remember last week we talked about this a little bit. As a sign... Uh, not that the water washed away their sins, but it was this sign that as they repented and turned to God in repentance, their sins were being washed away just as they were being washed in the Jordan River. So if this is a sign of repentance and a sign of the washing away of sins, that leaves us with the question we talked about last week. Why Jesus? Why does the sinless Messiah, the sinless Savior, born without the stain and the fall of Adam's sin, why does he need to be baptized? Why does he come to John and say, do this to fulfill all righteousness? You see that in Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, uh, and alluded to in John 1. We don't have the actual baptism, but it's alluded to in John 1. Well, last week we talked a lot about this. So I don't want to uh, repeat myself. You can go listen to that. But in this act, Jesus is identifying with sinners. If you remember the illustration I gave of uh, our little girls taking a bath and Lily coming in uh, dirty and muddy, and if she got in the water and, and that picture of the water being all dirty, and then Anna, let's say she's clean, and she's got to get in the same muddy bath water that Lily did, and we didn't want to change the water, uh, Lily might have had her stuff removed and washed away, but Anna is going to be dirty when she gets in the water. In the same way, the picture of Jesus' baptism 
is that these people are coming to remove sins by repentance, but Jesus comes sinless into this, the picture, this nasty, filthy water. And the picture is that Jesus is taking upon himself all of our sin and all of our filth and all of our dirt. That's the picture that Jesus steps into in his baptism. Not that he needed the washing away of sins, but he was showing that he came to take our sins and to thereby wash us clean. As Jesus is baptized, we see a lot of uh, Old Testament imagery, don't we? He's baptized in the Jordan River. He's baptized in water. Water always a reminder of um, one big encounter between the Israelites and water. You remember at the Red Sea when they come and they're trapped? Moses goes out, lifts up his staff, the sea parts, and they go through that. The author of Hebrews actually calls that the baptism of Moses. That's interesting language, and that's a whole other message. But he calls that the baptism of Moses as they pass through the waters to the other side. So there's that. That picture is there. Uh, Eli, when they came to the promised land, they had one more body of water to cross, didn't they? The Jordan River. Remember at the beginning of Joshua, as they go over on dry land, much the same as they went through the Red Sea, they cross through the Jordan River on dry land into the Promised Land. So all that is coming into bear, uh, to bear here into view as we see Jesus coming to the Jordan River, stepping there where Israel had gone as they passed through to the Promised Land. And then as Jesus comes up out of the water, we see heaven opened and we see the glory of God descend in the form of his spirit as it were a dove heaven opened the glory of god appears there over jesus more old testament imagery from sinai that just as we saw the glory of god descend there on sinai and fire and the clouds and the, the lightning and the thunder now we have the heavens opened uh, not over a mountain but over jesus and we hear a pronouncement, just like we did at Sinai, where God spoke, and it was terrifying, remember? And the people couldn't stand to hear his voice, and they begged Moses to make him stop talking, and he gave them the law. Now we have this pronouncement, not of law, but of Jesus Christ. The pronouncement is, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And all of this, is a sign of Jesus' mission, a sign of what he came to do. Isaiah says there in Isaiah chapter 11 that from Jesse's stump will come this shoot, this branch. And then he says, this branch will be my servant. And Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. Spirit of wisdom and knowledge of might and understanding, the knowledge of the Lord. And we see that here in the baptism of Jesus, don't we? This one from Nazareth coming and the Spirit descends on him. Just like Isaiah said it would, my Spirit will be upon him to do my work, to do my will, to do my mission in the world. That's what all this is about. That's what the baptism of Jesus is about. Identifying with sinners, doing the mission of God as the Son of God. Let's move on now and talk about the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4. Um, all the gospel writers, in, except John, include 
this event, and they put it there after the baptism. Uh, Luke squeezes in his genealogy between the baptism and the temptation, but all of them put it there after the baptism. And again, we have familiar imagery, because you don't begin reading the story of the temptation of Christ before you come to the setting of the temptation of Christ. Does anybody remember where Jesus was as we begin the temptation narrative? Oh, he's carried away from Jordan to wilderness. Any good Jewish listeners at that time would have understood the significance of the wilderness. Where was Israel for 40 years wandering in the wilderness? And here is Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights there, fasting in the wilderness. So all of that comes to mind, and it's intentional. It's a reminder, number one, it's a reminder of the failure of Israel. 1 John uh, 2.16, he tells us about these three categories of sin. You know this, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Remember that from 1 John 2.16. When you think back to Genesis 3.6, if you're still in Genesis, just look back there at Genesis 3, verse 6. Uh, see how the temptation comes to Eve from the serpent. What does it say um, Eve thought? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Does that sound familiar? The pride of the uh, lust of the flesh was good for food. I want that. The lust of the eyes, it looks good to me. I want that. And the pride of life, it will make me wise. The serpent said it will make me like God. That's the pride of life. Those three categories of sin that John mentions in 1 John. And we know what happens. She takes the fruit, she eats, and she fails the temptation. All three categories, Eve and Adam, both fail. When we come to the wilderness... Does Israel do much better? No. In, in every single aspect, they're always chasing after idols, not to mention when they come into the land, how many times God has to chastise them for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so we see failure, failure, failure. The wilderness reminds us of Israel's failure in the wilderness. It reminds us of Adam and Eve's failure there in the garden. But as Jesus is tempted, and I remind you, how many temptations does Jesus face in the narrative? Now, he faces many more, but in the narrative, what the gospel writers choose to tell us? Three temptations. You can look at those, and you can see aspects of that. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. But whereas Adam and Eve fail, where Israel failed, Jesus is victorious. Jesus does not succumb to that temptation of the devil. Now, Jesus will presumably face other temptations. I, we don't have any reason to believe that it was just this one time he faced temptations, or the word means tests. We don't, we, have other, we don't have any reason to think that Jesus was not constantly tested and constantly tempted throughout his life as a true human. So why is this story here? Why these three events, these three temptations here? Well, one, it ties us to 1 John and Genesis and those lusts and the pride of life, absolutely. But it also demonstrates 
from the very beginning of Jesus' mission. We've seen his birth, we've seen his baptism, the descent of the Holy Spirit, this is my beloved son, and the first thing he faces are these temptations, these tests. And so from the very beginning, from the start, we see Jesus is qualified and he is able as our sinless, perfect, and victorious Savior to do the thing that he came to do. And what did he come to do except to reverse the failure of Adam and Eve and to reverse the failure of Israel in the wilderness? Jesus comes as the new Adam to inaugurate a new creation here in the wilderness. Also also notice how Jesus fights this battle with Satan. The primary weapon Jesus uses is God's word. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus does many miraculous things in his ministry. Surely he could have just zapped Satan into oblivion right there at the temptation, but he doesn't. Instead, all three times he says what to Satan? It is written, it is written, it is written. Even as Satan quotes scripture and twists the scripture to suit what he wants to say, Jesus quotes it right back at him in context with authority to dispel the devil's lies and ultimately to remove him from the situation. But this also reminds us of something. That at the very beginning of the entire story of scripture is creation, right? That's the first thing, Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how does God create? Speaking his word, let there be, let there be, let there be, and God said. So what better way to inaugurate the new creation and to defeat Satan and be triumphant in this temptation than to speak God's word? It is written, it is written, it is written. And this is the pattern for Jesus throughout his entire ministry. Now let's talk quickly about the miracles of Christ The miracles of Christ are not tricks to attract a crowd. I think sometimes that's what we, uh, even as as believers, think the miracles were for. They were there to uh, validate Jesus' ministry and and draw a crowd and to, to show people he was who he says he was. And there were some aspects of that that are true. But they, they, weren't, uh, they weren't like carnival sideshows to attract people to him. We'll talk about that in a minute. And they were not normative events for everyone. Meaning that there was nothing in the ministry of Jesus in his miracles that should make us think, oh, this is normal. <laughs> this is what the church should be doing. And there's a lot of uh, charismatic type Christians out there that say that. Jesus did this. We should be doing it too. But that's not the point of Jesus' miracles. They're not tricks to draw a crowd. And they're not there to set some sort of normative, repeatable pattern for us to do or to expect. Okay? So why miracles? Well, the miracles are supposed to be signs of God's coming kingdom. Signs of God's coming kingdom. Let's uh, turn to Isaiah 35. I, want, I do want you to see this with me. Isaiah 35. Listen to Isaiah's prophecy about the coming of the Messiah and the new creation. Isaiah 35, starting in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The de- wilderness, wilderness, there's that. 
The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. He will come and deliver you. Now look at verses 5 and 6. What will that day look like? When God comes, when God comes to deliver his people, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Here in Isaiah's prophecy of the coming kingdom of God and the coming king of God, it is none other than God himself who will come. And notice the imagery there, a wilderness turned into a garden, a desert flowing with water. And then what do we see? The blind see, the deaf hear, the mute will sing, the lame will leap. And so when we come to the ministry of Jesus, what we see is a reversal of the fall. And it's as if Jesus is saying, what Isaiah foretold about that day of deliverance, when God comes, that is here, and it is now, and that's what I'm doing. In fact, when John the Baptist is in prison in Matthew 12, and even John the Baptist is beginning to have his doubts about who Jesus is, and he sends his messengers to Jesus one more time to make sure he's the one they've been waiting on. One more time, John the Baptist just wants to know, hey, I'm in prison. I just want to make sure you're the right guy. Are you the Messiah or are you not? Jesus sends his servants back to John the Baptist and he says what? Tell them what you see. And what do you see? The blind see, the lame leap, the deaf hear, the mute speak. Go tell John that. I presume John the Baptist would have heard that and said, oh, that's Isaiah. This is the one we've been waiting on. That's what the miracles were about. The reversal of the fall. There are some things I want you to note about the miracles of Jesus too. Uh, Jesus did not heal everyone. There's not a universal healing party for those three years of Jesus' ministry. Jesus did not perform on demand. In fact, instead of using miracles to draw people to himself, Jesus often refused to do signs and miracles because people only came for the miracles, remember? And he knew what was in men's hearts. And so he didn't do many signs. And he didn't do many miracles because he intentionally wanted to keep that from being the focus. He wanted them to know what he was there to do, to reverse all this and do the Isaiah thing. But he also was not going to play into the hands of the religious leaders and do a, a, a dog and pony show for them to have something to point at and to gawk at. That's not what he came for. In all of this, the reality behind the miracles is already not yet. You know this by now. It's one of my things. Already not yet. Jesus is giving signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into this fallen world. 
He's giving signs of the coming reverse of the fall as the blind see, the mute speak, the deaf leap. Uh, the deaf leap. The deaf hear and the lame leap. Or the deaf. I guess they leap when they, they heard stuff. Uh, that probably happened, right? He's saying, this is coming, and it is here now in me, but the fullness of it has not come yet. And this is the same tension we live in as Christians today. We live in the already of the kingdom of God, but also the not yet, as we await the fullness of that day and the fullness of the kingdom of God in Jesus as we live in faithful expectation. One more scene, and I'm going to hurry through this, I promise. The transfiguration of Christ. Uh, you know the story there in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. He takes uh, Peter, James, and John with him up on the mountain, and there he is transfigured. The word means there's a change, trans, in his figure, his appearance, his shape, his form. Something happens. And, they, and the, the gospel writers tell us that his face changes and shines like the sun, and his clothes are brilliant and white. Uh, Luke says it's whiter than any launderer could bleach them. It wasn't normal. Something happened up there on the mountain where his glory was revealed. For just that moment, that veil of the incarnation and that veil of the humble servant Jesus is removed just for a moment. And they see a full picture of the glory of God in Christ. And you guessed it, there's more Old Testament imagery here in this story. Just like Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. Do you remember in Exodus, as Moses went up to Sinai, a mountain, takes with him, remember, Aaron and Joshua, and at one time the 70 elders? And what do they do? They behold the glory of God there on the mountain from a distance. But nevertheless, he takes those men up there to see it for themselves. Remember on Sinai, there was God and his glory and fire and smoke and lightning and his terrifying voice. But what happens here on this mountain? Not Moses, Aaron, and Joshua and the glory of God on Sinai way up there away from them. But this is Jesus bringing Peter, James, and John with him up to the mountain. And the very glory of God is revealed in Jesus. Not a distant cloud and fire and smoke and lightning, but in the face of Jesus Christ. Don't, you don't have to turn here. We don't have time. But in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul talks about this. And, and this encounter with Moses. I think I preached on this last year on Christmas, this uh, unveiled face thing. That Moses saw the glory of God there on the mountain. Remember, he asked to see the glory of God. God said, you cannot see my face and live. So I'm going to put you in the rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. You will see my glory as it passes by. Old King James, you'll see the hinder parts of my glory as it goes by. And even just seeing that trail of God's glory as it went by, what happened to Moses? His face was changed, and he came down, and the people were terrified of him because his face was glowing. And they had to put a veil on his face because it was terrifying them, just like God's voice was terrifying. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, But when we come to Jesus, we don't have to behold God as through a veil, taking it off, putting it on as Moses did, Paul says, we with unveiled face behold the glory of God. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, how do we behold the glory of God? 2 Corinthians 4, 6, in the face of Jesus Christ. 
God said, no one can see my face and live. Moses and the others were shielded from the glory of God, but it still changed them. But here are these disciples on the mountain with Jesus, beholding the glory of God with unveiled face, face to face, in the face of Jesus Christ. What's the deal with Moses and Elijah there at the Transfiguration? Remember that they appear alongside of Jesus? Um, again, is it just there because, hey, hey, we know those two. They said Moses and Elijah. No, there's a reason that they're there. They represent the totality of the law and the prophets. And here they are, the gospel writers say, flanking Jesus on either side, both, as it were, pointing to him. As if to say, as Jesus himself did, that all the law and the prophets, the entire Old Covenant, the entire Old Testament points to me. Moses pointed to me. The prophets pointed to me. It was all about me, and it's right there in the transfiguration as they see the law and the prophets exalting and pointing to Jesus. It's also interesting in Luke's gospel that we're given a little um, insight into the conversation that Jesus is having with Elijah and Moses. Only Luke uh, gives us this. And it says that they were discussing Jesus' departure. Now, we read that in English, and we think, oh, yeah, his death, his resurrection, yeah, his departure, going to heaven, or all that stuff. But that word departure is the Greek word from which we get the very name of the book, Exodus. They were there, Moses and Elijah, talking about Jesus' coming exodus. Not just that he's going to depart, but that he's going to deliver a people into the promised land for God. Jesus then presents himself in the transfiguration as a new and a better and a greater final Moses who is bringing a new and a final and a greater exodus or deliverance. And just like at Sinai, when we heard God's voice, just like at Jesus' baptism, when we heard God's voice say what? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God speaks here at the transfiguration yet again. And it sounds like it's going to be the same thing. This is my beloved Son. But then we have this additional command. Listen to Him. Peter always so quick to speak and to plan and to plot. He sees Moses and Elijah there, and he's, he wants to build three ta tabernacles, three tents, remember? Let's just stay up here forever. This is great. Let's build all the tents for everybody, and we'll just stay up here on the mountaintop. And, and, and Luke presents as, as if while Peter was still talking, God speaks. As if to say, Peter, shut up for a second. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And what does Jesus say immediately after everything goes back to normal? In all three of the Gospels that report this event, he begins to talk about his coming suffering and his death. It was a mountaintop experience that was wonderful and glorious, and it was real, and it was who Jesus is. But there was more to be done. And God wanted these three disciples to pay close attention that it wasn't just about the mountain and the glory and the transfiguration. 
it was going to be about the cross. Listen to what? Listen to Jesus as he says why he came. To suffer and to die. And it reminds us what the Christian life is all about, doesn't it? The Christian life here and now is not glory. The Christian life right here and right now is not a crown. The Christian life right here and right now is a cross. Luke 9, 23. Take up your cross. That same chapter as the transfiguration. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter remembers this uh, last thing tonight. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. As we end, Peter remembers this event. Wouldn't you remember that event? You remember all those events. But um, the Southern Gospel song that I think the title is, I Wish I Could Have Been There. I don't know who sings it, but it's a little catchy Southern Gospel tune. I wish I could have been there. And it's about when the, the multitudes were fed and Jesus walked on the water and all the miracles were done. And it's an understandable sentiment. Like, yeah, I, I would like to have seen that too. And then we think, well, maybe that would strengthen my faith if I could have been there and seen that and, and witnessed it firsthand. But I'm afraid if we think that way, we're missing the point. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Listen to what Peter says. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, we didn't make this up. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, I was there. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the mountain. That's the transfiguration. Verse 19, though. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of a man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you see what Peter says? Peter says, I was there. I saw the signs. I saw the wonders. I saw the transfiguration. I saw the crucifixion. I saw the resurrection. I saw the ascension. And we think, man, if I could only have seen that. Well, let me ask you the question. How many people did see that and still yet rejected Jesus? And Peter says, it didn't do them much good. Peter says, it didn't do me much good either. Even I missed the point for a long time. And I saw all of it right before my face, and I still missed the point. That's why Peter says, we have something better. Well, what do we have? Peter says, we have the Word of God. And the Word of God is our light. We don't need to have been there. We don't need to have seen and experienced it. Peter says we have something more fully confirmed than that. The Word of God. And it's like a light shining in a dark place. Pay attention to it. 
because it's from the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you tonight that in closing, experiences come and go. Our feelings will rise and fall. But what is sure and what is certain in the gospel is what John says in John 20, verse 31. These things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. And he says that in knowing, you might have eternal life. Let me remind you of the real blessing. What happens just a few verses before that? Jesus tells Thomas, blessed are you because you've seen and you've believed. And what does he follow that up with? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And the reality behind all of this for us is that we know one day, though we don't see now, one day it will all be sight. And all that the miracles pointed towards will be reality. And Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 says, In that new heaven and new earth there will be no more weeping, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. Why? For the former things have all passed away. And behold, all things are new. So for now fueled by the life and the ministry and the person and the work of Christ. Let us listen. Let us follow. Let us deny ourselves. Let us take up our cross. Let us die to ourselves and find our life in him. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word. It is a lamp shining in a dark place for us even tonight. Help us to lay hold of it and to use it to navigate us through the events of what you've done for us here in your ministry on earth. More than that, to point us to what you're doing right now at the right hand of the Father, praying and interceding for us. That you bring us before the throne every single day. Jesus, point us to what you have done. Let that be an anchor and a promise of what you are yet to do and help us to long for that day with hope, with expectation, and with worship. We thank you and praise you. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com.